talk and connect and all those things. I'd rather just sit down and chat too, probably. But the, the study is called Esther, after all. It is called a Bible study. So, well, good morning. Welcome to the spring semester of women's Bible study. I'm thinking that whole snow day thing probably wasn't, I don't know, don't say that, Amy. I put my uh, Facebook status as, since November, I've been telling my son frequently, go outside and play, this might be the last nice day we have. And yesterday I'm like, you know what, I don't even believe myself anymore. I mean, last nice day we're going to have, wow. I couldn't even believe it. I came out of Walmart. I went in, and I, I guess I noticed how warm it was, but I came out, and I'm like, you are just kidding me. Where, where do I live? Is this Nebraska? So, I love it. Thank you, Al Gore. I'm fine with it. <laughs> you know, I, God's in control. If the globe's going to get warmer, I'm all right with that. I don't know. I, maybe, I, maybe nobody else is. But uh, Do you have any questions before we begin today? Yes, Diane, be proud. Yes. Okay. You love those, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, and we're going to talk about that because, I mean, it, 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 he's definitely implying something. What is he implying when he says, you know what, you can stay silent if you want, but you're going to die, you know, basically is what he's saying. And, um, and we will talk about what the possibilities are of what he's saying. I think he got done saying that, and Esther was going, what does he mean, honestly? I think she wondered what it meant, too. We'll talk about that. Any, okay, did you want to ask more? Okay, go, keep going. Right. And what was the theological significance, which I will talk about, of the three days? What, what did you say? It is definitely a foreshadowing of Jesus. Yep, intentional foreshadowing of Jesus on God's part. Yep, okay, and you had another one? Right. Was, was Esther a pagan queen? That's a really good question. Certainly, she was, um, if she was Jewish, she was a secret agent Jew. I mean, she, you know, she was really undercover <laughs> because nobody knew. Uh, that she was Jewish. And, and, and Judaism is the kind of um, faith that if you're going to practice it the way the Bible tells you to practice it, people are going to know, you know, why aren't you getting a cheeseburger? You know, I mean, it's, 
people are going to know um, because because of all the laws to keep and um, so that's uh, I, you know I, I suppose maybe she wasn't a pagan in in her heart but certainly in her actions she was yeah I mean, definitely she had a choice you mean in terms of being part of the beauty queen thing and yeah um, I think Esther definitely had a choice. Uh, she was probably pretty young. I mean, I think we, we always have a choice. It's just how difficult is the choice and what are the reasons why we're making the choice we make. And, um, and obviously, God worked in and through those choices. Um, but yeah, I, I, And what would it have cost her um, to have made a different choice? We'll never know, and she, she never knew. But. Any other questions? Yes. Lindsay. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I had you read Joel, and we'll read Joel again today. We'll talk about that fasting. Prayer is missing. Uh, it's even missing in the Joel. You know, it's you know, it's implied in the in Joel too. Um, I, I think there are other factors that would indicate that the sorrow, uh, that in their sorrow, in their grief. Um, the, the Israelites in Persia, in Susa, didn't necessarily turn to God in that, you know, there's a, there's a godless grief as well, that you're just grieving over the situation. Uh, but we will also talk about that today. Yeah, well, I mean, you can fast without prayer. The whole purpose of fasting, and I'm not going to get into this, and not the whole purpose, a purpose of fasting is to create space for time to pray. And so, you know, definitely prayer and fasting are tied to one another. Uh, but you can choose to fast for all sorts of different reasons and not necessarily include that in it. And why would they be fasting without praying? Just as a religious observance, just as this is what you do when you're in a bad situation. Um, not necessarily because God has anything to do with it, because certainly God isn't mentioned anywhere in this text or in the, the book as a whole. Okay? Okay, any other questions? Bless you. Thank you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much um, that as we come to you today, uh, we know that your word is true, Father. We know that you have a plan, you have a purpose, Father. And we know that uh, for each of us, you have placed us where we are for such a time as this. So, Father, I pray that you would speak your word into our hearts today and um, reveal those things of your plan and purpose to us that we need to know. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just to review very quickly chapters 2 and, and 3, uh, the, at the beginning of chapter 2, all the beautiful young virgins are assembled, uh, and they are vying to replace Vashti as the new and better queen, uh, the, the more uh, obedient queen by taking turns sleeping with Xerxes, so he can decide who he likes best, and he chooses Esther. Esther wins the heart of the king and therefore the new queen beauty pageant. Uh, she really was a beauty pageant queen. And uh, she conceals her identity as a Jew at her cousin Mordecai's request. Uh, we also meet Mordecai in chapter two who had raised 
uh, Esther from a young age when her parents died, and he was a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, possibly a descendant, a physical descendant of Saul. Um, and we also learn in chapter 2 that a couple of the king's aides are wanting to assassinate the king. Mordecai gets word of this, takes that news to Esther, who takes it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai, and this assassination plot is thwarted because of Mordecai. Uh, and then it's dropped. It's written down in the king's book, and they do nothing. There's not even a, you know, a gold watch, pat on the back, you know, an attaboy, anything. Right at the place where we would think that somebody would be going, Haman, thank you so much, can I take you to Applebee's? We meet, or Mordecai, thank you so much, let me take you to Applebee's. We meet Haman. And we find out that, uh, that at this point, Haman has been promoted to second in command. Um, the, he's the number two guy in all of Persia, the right-hand man of the king. And by order of the king, everyone is to bow and to show reverence to Haman, which he really liked. Uh, but Mordecai refused to do that. And uh, that really upset Haman. Uh, Haman was uh, very angry about that and decides to seek revenge. But it's not good enough for him just to kill Mordecai. He decides that he's just going to kill every Jew there is all throughout the kingdom, which is effectively Jewish, uh, genocide because all of the Jews on earth lived within the Persian realm at that time. So he goes to the king and he manipulates the king by telling falsehoods, half-truths, and not giving all the information. He manipulates the king into signing a decree that all Jews everywhere within the Persian Empire would be killed on a certain date that was decided by lot, by a pur, which that word will come back, which is why I wrote it down. Aren't you happy I wrote one word and you could pronounce it? Isn't that great? Um, it, essentially, this was a roll of the dice. And, and by a roll of the dice, it was decided that 11 months later in the um, month of Adar that this, uh, this edict would be fulfilled. And the edict said in part that they were to kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day and to plunder their goods. Now the reaction to this varied. Xerxes and Haman decided to go get wasted after they passed this edict, but the people of Susa were bewildered. In fact, we're going to see here that many lay in sackcloth and ashes because they couldn't understand why these, these friends, these people that they had known all their lives, now they were all, all of a sudden supposed to turn on and annihilate. So we begin here then, this, this edict has been passed, and now it's going to talk about Mordecai's reaction to this, and I assume his reaction was in part strong because he knows he was the one that pushed Haman over the edge. You know, I don't think it would have been real hard for anyone to push Haman over the edge. I think he was on the edge most of, his time, most of the time, but he knows that, and so his reaction is particularly emotional. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sack, sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now the sackcloth and ashes is not uncommon in the Old Testament. It's a common uh, way in, in ancient cultures, actually in general, um, to 
uh, to express grief, to tear one's clothes, to put on this itchy sort of burlap sack, whatever, and lay in ashes and, uh, and, and to grieve. Uh, in fact, Joshua and Caleb did that when the Israelites said, we don't want to go into that land. Those people are huge. Uh, and David put on sackcloth and ashes when Saul died and when his son died. And so um, this was uh, fairly common. In fact, the Persians understood what was going on here because they too used this sort of method of expressing uh, grief. Uh, at one time when they were defeated by Greece, it was kind of a national sackcloth and ash day. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I would make a joke out of that. So it's an, it's an emotional, I, that's not written down. So much of what I say is not written down, which is probably a mistake. Uh, it is an emotional response to this, um, this edict, to say the least. Uh, here, I just want to bring this up now. Here is God's take on our grief, on, on what should cause us grief. God says, through the prophet Joel, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. And this is said to a people who were being... Um, Unfaithful to God, obviously. So God would rather have our hearts uh, than, and, and be grieved over our sin than to have us tear our clothes. An inward rather than an outward show of grief. Uh, and both in Joel and in Esther, in, this, in these verses, there is no mention of prayer, although it may be implied as part of fasting, at least in Joel. But in Esther, you notice here, at least in Joel, it says, return to me with all your heart. Uh, the, the idea of repentance, the idea of turning away from sin and toward God, which is what repentance actually means, is, is all over those verses in Joel. But we don't really see that in Esther. And so I think that it's possible that these people, rather than being sorry for their sin, were just sorry about the situation. Years ago when I was teaching at Miller North, I was in fact young, but I actually looked younger than I was, and I got mistaken for a student all the time. They even tried to charge me student prices in the 910 cafeteria, and I'm like, look, I know, I'm 25, and I'm young, but I don't look like I'm 13, really honestly. But I would, I would often be mistaken for a student, and so students wouldn't know I was a teacher, and so they'd act the way they always act. And I'm walking down the hall, and there's these two boys next to me, and they're just, this one is just cussing a blue streak. And I turn and I give them the teacher look. And he immediately knew, oh, she's not a kid. And so he goes, oh, I'm sorry. And I said, you know what? You're not sorry you said it. You're sorry I heard it. And there's a difference. And, and there is a difference, I think, between what's happening in Joel and what's happening in Esther. They are sorry that this edict has been passed. I don't know uh, that they're sorry about the way they've been living for 100 years uh, apart from God. Uh, necessarily. Maybe they were. We aren't really given uh, an explicit uh, explanation by the author, but I think it's at least possible that the author is giving us evidence of the secular, secularization of the faith of the Jews living in Susa. Uh, so here, here's the response of Esther to all this. 
When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So she didn't even know what was going on. And she was in great distress, but her distress was at Mordecai's behavior. His distress distressed her. Apparently, she had no clue what was troubling him. A law has been passed to annihilate an entire race of people, and the queen doesn't know. She possibly just wanted him to stop making a fool of himself in the streets of Susa. Like your crazy uncle at a family reunion. Please, buddy, put down the beer and act normally. Uh, and, and she even sends him clothes to put on. You know, here, but she's a woman, so she, I'm sure she thought that shopping for clothes would make him feel better. Here, look, this new, my mom used to call it a new fetty. Here's a new fetty for you. You know, something, some new clothes would just make everything better, I'm sure. Um, and so that is her reaction. And we have this, um, this further evidence of the isolation that Esther must have lived in. I think Karen Jobes calls it something like elegant isolation. Earlier, we found out that Mordecai would check on Esther, not by visiting her, but kind of walking around the outer court and seeing, make sure everything okay, is she okay, everything going all right, kind of talking to people. And we're going to see it again in a little bit when they have this whole back and forth communication, never face to face, always with a courier. And so here, we learn that her isolation is so complete that she doesn't even know about Haman's law. She's going to, and she didn't even know why Mordecai, what are you upset about? So she's about to find out uh, because Haman's going to, or Mordecai's going to tell her. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her, and he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. So Esther, so Mordecai makes the case to Esther uh, to go and plead for the Jews. He feel, fills her in on the law that's been passed, what it means, uh, what its ramifications are, uh, even sends her a copy of the law. And then, and then asks, tell her, please, to beg for mercy from the king. This is actually the language of prayer uh, in the Hebrew, uh, to, to beg and to plead before God. But she says, no, to go to the king and to plead the case of her people before the king. So Mordecai, who had instructed Esther to conceal her identity as a Jew, is now choosing this time to ask her to out herself as a Jew, at the very time that a law has been passed for the Jews to be destroyed. A law has been passed to kill all the Jews. Hey, listen, do me a favor. Uh, go tell the king you're a Jew. And I'm sure that Esther was like, now? Now you want me to do that? You know, here? And, and essentially, she begs off. She doesn't exactly say no, but she begs off. She says, so Hathak, oh, no, no, is that what I just read? That's what I just read. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, I think that's my cross. It's lovely, but it needs to go there. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, 
that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to, the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go into the king. So she doesn't exactly say no, but she gives a list of the reasons why it would not be wise for her to do as Mordecai has asked her to do. And there was a very real danger for Esther in doing this because approaching the king was just not done, not without invitation. And, and if, uh, if, if it is an uninvited approach of the king, then it was punishable by death unless the king held out his scepter and accepted the person. And, and Esther's saying, and the chances of that happening are really slim, because he hasn't wanted me in 30 days. And trust me, the king was not sleeping alone for a month. And so it seems that his passion for her may have waned. This is not a good time for me to be going in front of the king uninvited. I, we can't know Esther's thoughts. The, the author doesn't tell us. But I think she's essentially asking him to reconsider what he's asking her to do. If we read between the lines a little bit, I, I, I imagine she would be thinking, surely Mordecai, who has protected me all my life, would not want me now, would not now want me to be put in mortal danger. Uh, and uh, apparently Esther hasn't connected all the dots with uh, Haman's law because Mordecai's about to tell her, baby, you're already in mortal danger in verses 12 through 14. And he doesn't really mince words here. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. So he says, help will come from another place. And is this, is this a veiled reference to God? Some theologians say that it is. They say um, that primarily because ancient rabbis occasionally occur, or excuse me, occasionally referred to God as the place, the place where creation exists. So these people say that Mordecai is saying that if Esther refuses to act, God himself will intervene on behalf of the Jews. But that's problematic for a couple of reasons. The first one is that Mordecai doesn't say that help will come from the place. He says it'll come from another place, a place, not the place. But more importantly, it creates an artificial choice between Esther um, acting on behalf of the Jews and freeing them or, or um, uh, you know, getting the, the edict revoked, or God acting upon behalf of the Jews and delivering them from the edict. The, and the truth is that God is going to deliver the Jews. The only choice is God's choice of which human agent he chooses to use to do it. Either way, whether through Esther or another person, it is he who will deliver the Jews. So Mordecai is saying to Esther, if you won't help us, then somebody else will. There will be another human who will step in to help. The Jews will be delivered. Uh, but then he throws this bomb at Esther. But if you don't help, you'll die. You will perish. Is that a threat? 
Is he threatening her? He could be. There are a lot of theologians that are saying, you know what, if you don't do it, I'll kill you. Whoa, okay. That's, but he could be. Is he threatening to reveal her identity? He's going to say, if you won't tell him a Jew, I'll tell him, tell him you're a Jew. Uh, is he threatening God's divine judgment upon her? This is what God is calling to you, you to do. You are risking divine judgment if you don't. Will she be, is he saying, you know, that if you don't step in and help us, the Jews are going to be angry and they'll kill you? Uh, it's hard to tell. Uh, we, we don't know. I mean, I, th I, think, I think there is probably some sort of a threat, but we don't know of, of what. And as I mentioned before, I think Esther was wondering the same thing. The point here is what Mordecai is saying. And what Mordecai is saying is that, yes, Esther, your life may be in danger if you go before the king uh, uninvited, but your death is certain if you do not. Uh, and so Esther is, is placed here, Mordecai says, for such a time as this. Famous words. He, he's saying there's a purpose, Esther. There's a reason for all that has happened. Might it just be that God has placed you in this position so that you might intercede for your people, be their advocate, be their mediator? And Esther is swayed by his words. Now, we don't know if she's afraid of his threat, and so she is swayed, or if she is emboldened and, um, and uh, sees that there is a purpose for all that has happened and, and has a greater purpose for her life now. We don't know which it is. It maybe is a combination of both. But either way, she is swayed, and she decides, she makes a very crucial decision about what she will do and who she will be. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. This is really interesting. For the first time, Esther's telling Mordecai what to do. For the first time, Mordecai is acting on the instructions of Esther. And what she tells him is, fast for three days, you and all the Jews in Susa. Again, there's no mention of prayer. It may be implied. We don't know, but there's no mention. And she says, if I perish, I perish. Esther's decision to identify with her people changes her entire outlook. And it's interesting to me that she comes into her own, not only as Queen Esther, but as a child of God, only after she chooses which side she is on. She chooses who she is, she decides who she is, and whose she is. And then she becomes Queen Esther. This is Esther's pivotal circumstance. Esther is the only person in this story that has two names. Hadassah, her Jewish name, and Esther, her Persian name. And she needs to decide with whom, with, with which of these names is she going to identify. Is she going to be Esther the Persian queen, or is she going to identify with God's people as Hadassah, the beautiful but Jewish girl? And there is risk 
real true risk in this identification because in doing so, she makes herself a target of Haman's edict. I think in order to do this, to get to this point, it took great courage. To get to this point, I think she had to overcome herself more than anything. Her fear, she'd lived a life of ease and comfort in the palace. She, she might have to give that up. Her inadequacy, look, I'm just a pretty Jewish girl. I can't do this. I'm not, I'm not cut out for this. But in order to become what God had created her to be, and, and, and what he had positioned her to do, she had to overcome that. And by God's grace, she did. I think we have pivotal circumstances in our lives as well. God has placed you, he's placed me in our own set of circumstances, in a family, in a job, in friendships, in a church. And I think we come to a point where we have to say, what is it that God is calling me to do? To live day after day in comfort and ease? Or is there something more that God is calling me to do? How is it that God wants me to identify with his people while I'm here on earth? And there may be stuff in ourselves that we have to overcome to do that. Fear and pride and comfort. I like being comfortable. Comfortable is fun. And feelings of inadequacy and the, the opinions of others. What will others think if I do something so crazy as this? Look, I don't think any of us is going to be called upon to uh, stop uh, a tyrannical maniac. Uh, at least I hope not. But we have all been called, we have all been placed in some sense where we are for such a time as this. Um, in April I will be going for the third time to Zambia and you would think that I'd be used to it by now. Every time I go I'm more scared. I have more frequent dreams about snakes, I'm sure I am going to die on the trip, uh, and I'm scared to death to go back. That's the honest truth. This time, well, this time last year, when my son said, Mom, you're not going to miss the Timothy Award next year, are you, to go to Zambia? And I said, oh, no, son, I won't do that. It's the Awana Award. I will miss the Timothy Award, and that's harder for me. I missed Josh's prom three years ago. That's harder for me. Uh, than missing Josh's prom. I'm going to miss Katie's pop concert. It is costing me to go to Zambia um, this time more than just money. But here's the deal. God has called me to teach, and he's called me to identify with a small group of women that are part of God's people in Zambia. I have to go because I was created for such a time as this. And he will equip me to do what he has called me to do. And by the way, I am going with, uh, with Lane's complete blessing uh, and Katie's as well. Um, I wasn't going to go if I didn't have it. Um, but I must respond. We must all respond to God's calling on our lives, even at the cost of overcoming our own fears and inadequacies, because God will help us and enable us to overcome those things. So she goes before the king. And she says, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. 
When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out her gold scepter uh, and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. There's great irony here because Vashti uh, risked her life by refusing to appear before King Xerxes when summoned. And here Esther is risking her life by appearing before the king without being summoned. And for the first time in the entire book, Esther is referred to as Queen Esther. She appears in her royal robes. She is taking on her identity and her authority as queen, even as she is identifying with her people as a Jew for the first time. And the royal scepter is extended, and the threat of fear is abated, or the threat of death is abated, at least for now. And it says right here at the beginning, on the third day, Esther appeared, and there is great theological significance throughout the Bible of three days. Uh, and and uh, repeatedly in the Old Testament, God comes to the aid of his people, the rescue of his people, on the third day. And here we see it is on the third day in the king's throne room that Esther is granted life instead of death. And, and we who name the name of Christ should not be blind. This, the significance of this should not be lost on us. For we too have been granted life instead of death on the third day after Christ's crucifixion. I, I got to tell you, and I know I've done this a lot, but Karen Jobes says this and connects these dots much better than I ever could. So let me read to you from what she says. On the third day, the Persian king, whose word is irrevocable law, extends the golden scepter to Esther, lest she die for coming into his presence unsummoned. Esther approaches the king and completes this gracious gesture by touching the tip of the scepter. Her safety in his presence is thereby granted. This scene pictures a gracious act of a king who holds life and death power. Had God not extended the cross of Jesus Christ to the world, all would die in his presence. On the third day, after the final judgment transpired on the cross, Jesus Christ arose to imperishable life, guaranteeing safety to enter God's presence to all who would reach out in faith to touch that cross-shaped scepter. The whole of the Old Testament points to Jesus in every single detail. So... The king grants an invitation to her. He says, then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. This whole up to half the kingdom, that was an ancient idiom of kings. And basically it just meant like, what do, you, what do you want? I am favorably disposed to give you what you want. And so you knew ahead of time that, that he was in a generous mood to give. Uh, and Esther shows great political acumen here because she, she doesn't pounce. Haman's trying to kill our people! You know, she doesn't, I'd be just be, you know, I'd run a rush in and just let him know, get to the punchline. But she doesn't do that. Um, and, and, you know, apparently it has always been true that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach uh, because what she does is she invites him to do something that we all know he wanted to do. Party? You want me to come to a party? Absolutely, I'd love to go to a party. And so in a brilliant political move, 
Esther is both asking the king to do something that she knew he would want to do, and now she has the, the king and his right-hand man acting on her initiation, doing what she has asked them to do. Brilliant. So they get to the banquet. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, also a brilliant move, the king again asked Esther, now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the, half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. So while they were drinking, Esther requests for them to come back for another day. But check this out. To what is the king agreeing? He's agreeing before he even hears it to grant her request. Um, she is essentially saying, if you are willing to grant my request, come back tomorrow to another banquet and I'll tell you what you, are, what you have just agreed to. Then, again, brilliant. Was this just a delay tactic? Why, why did she do this? Was she, did she lose her nerve? I don't think she did. I know VeggieTales thinks she lost her nerve. I don't think she lost her nerve. Um, I, I don't think it's that she's afraid. I, I think that, that she realized that she wanted to get him to agree to fulfilling her request before she ever asked it. And she realized that this is kind of the way he operated. She understood the king's idiosyncrasies. This was not the first time that the king agreed to something before he had all the details about it. And she knew that about him. She's reeling him in like an expert fisherman, you know, fisherwoman. We, we fish at camp, at Royal Family, and I'll tell you that dock is the most dangerous place in the camp. Uh, especially there's one camper, I can't give her a name, but there was one camper where you were constantly doing this. You know, what she, she's going to hook me, you know, because she just, and this is, how, this is how she fished. I loved fishing with her. She'd go like this. And she's like, I'm not catching fish. I'm like, baby, you've got to leave it out there a while. Every single time. No, that's not what Esther's doing. Esther's reeling him in gently. Um, and then we're not going to read this because we're about out of time. But then we see Haman's 75-foot pride. He goes home feeling really good about himself, and there's Mordecai. And he's not bowing, and it ruins his day. It did not take much to ruin Haman's day. So he goes home, and he gathers all his friends, and like many small men before and after him, he tried to build himself up by bragging. You know what? I'm the, I've got all these sons. I've got this wife. I've got this position. Did you know I'm the number two guy in all of... Uh, Persian Empire. And not only that, but I am the only man besides the king that Queen Esther has invited to her banquet. But none of it means anything as long as Mordecai's out there. And so his wife says, I know what you can do. You can build a gallows 75 feet high and hang Mordecai on it. And go figure, he loved that idea. Uh, even though it was just a, uh, an estimation of his own pride in doing so. Well, let's, um, let's talk about this last, uh, or this, this uh, whole part of Scripture. Um, for such a time of this, you know, we all know the end of this story. And so it's really easy for us to say, well, yeah, of course, duh, that's the whole point of the story, that she was placed in this position for such a time as this. But Esther didn't know that. 
Esther didn't know the end of the story as she was standing outside the throne room of the king, not knowing if she would live or die. She may have known that God had promised to protect his people, but that didn't necessarily mean that she would live in this particular circumstance. Um, And it took great courage for her to do that. And in that sense, we are very much like Esther. Because as we stand where we are, in whatever mess we have in our lives, we don't know how it's going to turn out. Now, ultimately we do. Ultimately we know that there's another side, and it is perfect and wonderful, and we can take hope in that. But where we stand right now, there's no promise that the next doctor's appointment is going to be the one where you hear news you don't want to hear. Um, And there's no promise that this particular situation with your child is going to turn out the way you dreamed. Uh, It always would. And and so even though we know we are ultimately and eternally um, safe, when calamity strikes or we face a difficult situation, we don't know how it will end, how it will turn out for us in the here and now. And so here's my question for you. Where do you turn? in those difficult situations? When we face those times of trial, do we rend our hearts and turn to God and his word, or do we turn to another place, another plan of friends or family or food or entertainment or alcohol or whatever? True confession, when I'm really hurting, when I'm really having trouble, I am most likely to call 903-464-9935 because I just put my older sister's phone number on the internet. (laughs) See, also not written down. And she's listening to this, so I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to uh, confess to that. I'm most likely to call one of my sisters. What an indictment of my faith that rather than turning to God, I love my sisters, they're godly women. But instead of rending my heart and returning to God, I'm more likely to call them. Ian DeGood says that we often live as virtual atheists when we turn to another place rather than to God. Ouch. Ladies, this world is not a safe place, and we have an enemy of our souls who cannot touch our eternal inheritance. But he would love nothing more than to entice us to live as virtual atheists atheists rather than turning to God in times of difficulty. The prophet Joel tells us exactly where we are to turn in times of difficulty. Even now, declares the Lord, actually God tells us, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. When we face difficulty, when trouble strikes our home, our country, our lives, we are to go on our knees before a loving and merciful God. This world is not a safe place and our enemies are real. But God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love. May we rend our hearts and not our garments and turn to him.
Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are who you are, that in this unsafe world, we have a very safe God. Thank you. You alone are worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.